Hello. You're listening to the second episode for July 2023 of the BV Podcast, your taste of rural and some urban Dorset life. A warm welcome from me, Jenny Devitt. And me, Terry Bennett. Simon Hoare, MP for North Dorset, defends the government's record on handling the rapidly evolving effects of climate change and points to what he regards as an emerging public health crisis in the shape of vaping. And questions, 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 says the North Dorset Lib Dems' Mike Chapman in a mock exam paper, a political one, of course. Labour's Pat Osborne welcomes the recent report into racism and other forms of discrimination in cricket and sees it as encouraging in making the sport a more inclusive environment for all. And Ken Huggins of the North Dorset Green Party does find a bright spot among the gloom. Julie Hatcher of the Dorset Wildlife Trust talks about the appeal the Trust has recently launched to raise awareness and do something about the plastic pollution off Dorset's coasts. And Fanny Charles talks about the life and work of Dorset-based artist Philip Sutton. Politics, changing climate and harmless fruit juice. Climate change is all around us and it is being acted on. While vaping could be the next public health crisis, says MP Simon Hoare. I want to cover two issues this month. The first is around the environment and the second on a public health matter. We've gone through an incredibly dry winter here in North Dorset, punctuated by just two heavy episodes of rain. From looking parched and somewhat augusty after the latest deluge, the verges, gardens and fields are now looking a little fresher. Whichever way you look at it, our climate, and therefore the environment, is changing. It's no longer something anyone can tuck away in the too-difficult drawer. I take the issue of climate change seriously, and am proud of the record of the government since 2010 in driving forward the green renewables agenda. We saw strong leadership provided at COP in Glasgow, have overseen a massive expansion of offshore wind and solar power generation, a focus on electric vehicles and the greening of the wider economy. There's been a significant tilt in the daily percentage of power generated in the UK from renewable sources and a realisation that maximising domestic renewable energy security is as important as defence or food security. The groundbreaking Environment Act points the way to a more nature-rich, biodiverse and secure natural environment. We often forget that it was this government, the first among developed economy nations, that legislated for net zero by 2050. We are, of course, in a period of transition right now. Climate change sceptics point to the increasing costs to support renewable investments, and they're correct. But how much higher the cost of a degraded and destroyed world, rendered unfit by man's own hand from man's habitation? I didn't come into politics to witness a cultish global suicide pact. Those who are fully committed to addressing climate change worry that progress is not being made quick enough, that all use of non-renewable power sources should stop now. Of course, the goal is desirable and attainable, but we do have to keep the lights on, manufacturers manufacturing, etc. while we progress to that destination. Where things can be speeded up, I will continue to press, but confidence in the commitment of the government to achieve progress cannot be in serious question. The second issue I want to touch on is teenage health. Safe sex, don't smoke, healthy diets, exercise, sensible alcohol consumption, no drugs. They're all part of the parent and carer's mantra. It's only in recent weeks that media coverage and political narrative has turned to vaping. Somehow, plumes of dubiously sweet-flavoured smoke can be inhaled and exhaled with impunity. 
It's a flammable fruit juice, isn't it? Perfectly safe, isn't it? Entirely harmless. Well, I would urge parents, and in fact all those who are using vapes as the well-it's-not-a-cigarette option, to take a look online, see some of the chemicals that go into vapes, then ask a very simple question. If that was in food, would I buy it? Let my child eat it. Government is alert to the issue and the Prime Minister is taking a lead. Locally, I am particularly concerned, I declare an interest here, from September, my three children will be attending school in the town, to see two vape shops in Gillingham, one adjacent to a sweet and party shop. Two vape shops within striking distance of a very large high school. A coincidence or a deliberate marketing decision? You can probably guess what I think. I do not want, and neither does the government, to see vaping and its potentially addictive and adverse health effects become the next public health challenge. And this month's contribution from Mike Chapman of the North Dorset Lib Dems. Questions, questions, questions. Tis the season of exams. I was cheered recently when an invigilator described the efforts that go into providing a level playing field for all those sitting exams, whatever their disadvantages or disability, from different colours of paper to see pen readers, scribes and interpreters. Nothing, though, to suggest that a student should do anything other than bring their A-game and give the thing their best shot. With that questioning spirit in mind, here is a short quiz with some suggested answers. Question. What do the Conservative government and the recent Glastonbury Festival have in common? Answer. A rather tired line-up, giving us a few last hurrahs and a few notable early departures. Question. What do government, local and national, and English cricket both need to do? Answer. Embrace a broader, more inclusive and representative approach. Stop ministering to a like-minded, narrow-minded and class-conscious minority. Throw the doors open to talent, energy, commitment and fair-mindedness. Question. Many and various. Where is the credible plan for a net zero? for a UK response to huge US and EU investment in the technologies of the future, for an effective, balanced strategy for NHS and public sector manpower, pay and conditions, for training and deploying the thousands of GPs we so sorely need, for beating down core inflation, for preventing profiteering by retailers, banks and energy providers, for protecting our environment from self-serving utility companies, for building the houses and communities we need, for enhancing our food security, for providing reliable, affordable public transport, for resolving the mess that is our economic relationship with Europe. I could go on. Multiple choice section. Is our army A, the strongest it has ever been, B, getting stronger by the year, or C, the smallest and weakest for 200 years? Is the NHS A going from strength to strength, B brilliant by international comparison, or C worryingly fragile and open to fragmentation and sell-off? Is Brexit A a success, B still the right thing to have done, or C both feet well and truly shot to pieces? The by-elections on the 20th of July give people across the country the opportunity to put this government on notice. This was written before the recent by-elections. A stronger message must follow, not simply must do better, but that there is no confidence and even less trust in the conservative ethos of personal freedom. 
aka look after number one, and let the devil take the hindmost. Theirs has been an historic failure that now needs fixing by the grown-ups on behalf of all of us and our kids and grandkids. This government is now visibly hunkering down, eking out its last months in power and focusing on the few dog-whistle topics that make the headlines in their safe papers. That isn't government. It is having us on. Racist, sexist, elitist cricket? Not in my town, writes Labour's Pat Osborne. English cricket has been in the news for all the wrong reasons again this week, with a report from the Independent Commission for Equity in Cricket finding widespread and deep-rooted racism, sexism, elitism and class-based discrimination at all levels of the game. As an active member of my local branch of Unite, the Union, an organisation that exists to protect and further the interests of working people in our communities, regardless of their race, gender or any other protected characteristic, the findings were simultaneously unsurprising and surprising. Unsurprising because the attitudes and behaviours described in the report are too often reflected in workplaces and in wider society. Surprising because, as proud sponsors of the Blanford Girls Cricket for the past three seasons, our branch's own experience of community cricket could not be more different. The report is encouraging not just because it shows a commitment from the cricket community to root out racism, sexism and homophobia, but because it also seeks to address class-based discrimination, a form of discrimination that's rarely even acknowledged as existing. Encouraging, too, are examples from clubs like Blanford, which are clearly well on the way to getting it right. It's taken effort, will, time and support, but Blanford's commitment to diversity and inclusion is now self-evident, not only from the way that its membership reflects the full range of backgrounds of the people of Blanford and surrounding communities, but also from the concerted effort made by the club to champion inclusion in cricket for underrepresented groups such as women, girls and people with disabilities. And while Blanford Cricket Club continues to create such a welcoming and inclusive atmosphere, I'm certain that our branch and other local businesses and organisations will want to continue to sponsor their mission to bring people together through cricket. Just recently, the Dorset Wildlife Trust launched an appeal to fight plastic pollution off the county's coast. Julie Hatcher is the Trust's Marine Awareness Officer. I spoke to her about the aims of the appeal and how much money they hope to raise. With this marine appeal, Save Our Wild Seas, uh, we're hoping to raise an, an extra £25,000 um, to fund our work. And, and what will that go towards then, Julie? Um, well, it'll go towards um, our engagement work. So we're trying to raise, raise awareness of the various problems that are linked to uh, marine litter. So through our visitor centres, do uh, making displays, talking to visitors, training our volunteers, that kind of thing. But also actually getting out and doing some practical work uh, with volunteers and with members of the public. So we run public events where we go on the beach and we um, look at particularly at microplastics, for example. Um, and, we, and, and, you pick, and you collect them. So there's, there's... And we collect them and then we use those to raise further awareness. And then we've also, we're we've sort of trialling a project with the public at the moment that we need funding to take forward. And that's looking at the issue of fishing net cuttings, which you might not hear a lot about 
in the press but actually fishing net cuttings make up over 25% of all the beach litter found in the northwest Atlantic area and certainly here along the Dorset coast we get an awful lot of little tiny pieces of fishing net sometimes they call fishermen's kisses because you get the little cross um, which is the corner of the the squares of the fishing net that are cut out um, and what fishermen do to repair their nets obviously they do need repairing um, and they tend to do it either at sea on their boat or on the quayside and they cut sections of net out and replace them uh, and just um, sling the the cut out well bits, uh, they, they're not board. collected up they, they're just left and so they sort of the weather the tides whatever washes them into the sea uh, or blow, the wind blows them into the sea from the quayside so they they enter the marine environment and this is happening of course not just here in dorset but all over the atlantic and of course we get litter here from right across the atlantic from north america we get fishing litter washing up that's that's only it's not used in this country so we know it's not local and and so, the, these these little pieces of of cut out bits of plastic netting how, roughly how big are they well they can be any size from massive pieces of net in, um, in which marine animals can get caught can't they can get entangled yeah to tiny little 1 centimeter lengths of 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 net so and, they can be really tiny and those that, at that size they could be mistaken for bits of food and fed to the young of say seabirds couldn't they absolutely yes they could be and also they fray so little bits of fibers all come out of them over time which are sometimes microscopic um, you can't even see them with the naked eye so you can't remove them from the environment and they get into animals um, they've even been found in in the you know the the gills of crabs for example and things like that so they're so tiny so getting all this stuff off the beach is is really important but not only that it's it's trying to find a way of recycling it into something useful um, so rather than sending all this beach litter to landfill actually making it into something useful and preventing the use of further virgin plastic being made um, yeah. and, that's and, the sort of thing we want to do and of course Julie just sending it back to landfill where that to happen in the case of microplastics they would eventually find their way back into the seas through uh, you, you know the natural um, uh, progression of, of uh, being being washed down um, with rain and then into the watercourses and then out to sea again wouldn't yes they? yes absolutely now now plenty of the plastic pollution is of course very visible but you've just been talking about these microplastics and there are billions of tiny culprits aren't there uh, that, that you have to look pretty hard to spot like like plastic nurdles those those little blue things that get buried deep in a sandy beach for instance uh, yeah, nurdles are the pre-production pellets used by the plastics industry and that's how plastic is transported around the world um, to factories to be made into plastic products. And it might be the result of recycling plastic. So when you put your recycling in your recycling bin, ultimately that will be uh, made into pellets to then be transported and, and used again. Um, or it might be virgin plastic, new plastic. So obviously they get spilled 
and they're a bit like grains of rice you know they flow so if, if there's a spillage they flow into the environment uh, it might be a container load of them that falls off a shipping container at sea or they might get spilled in the factory and get washed down drains and end up in the sea um, so there's lots of ways they can enter the marine environment and they come in a multitude of colours actually the blue ones that you mention could possibly be bio beads which look very similar to nurdles little pellets but they're used in water treatment so in sewage works for example and they also manage to get into the environment as well so there's lots like you say there's lots of different forms of microplastic now i i understand julie that the sea off the dorset coast alone has some 157 marine species of what you say conservation concern how do you define conservation concern well um conservation concern it, it's like you know with with birds that there's a red list some of them are red listed because they they've been under massive decline um, and they're thought to be at risk of, of, of local extinction here in the UK um, so they'll be red listed so th there's there's a way it's not something that the wildlife trusts decide it's something that the conservation authorities such as DEFRA Natural England um, I should imagine they decide which animals or species I should say are of conservation concern it might be that they are um, what we call a keystone species which if we lose them or if they go under decline that's going to mean a change a, a big change for lots of other species that depend on them being there as part of the ecosystem so there's there's various reasons why a species might be of conservation concern and and of course if those uh, if those um, 157 marine species decline further uh, then of course that that has uh, impl implications for the richness and health of our coastal waters doesn't it well it does and even one species lost from an ecosystem can have you know a, a knock-on effect on on all the other species because it might be the prey of a species that then affects the predator that's relying on it or it might be a predator that then that is important for keeping the balance of species in the ecosystem and we can't imagine what the consequences will be when we lose uh, a species so to lose 157 of them would be you know uh, and, and what sort of what sort of species are these i would imagine you've probably heard of seagrass eelgrass there's a couple of species in dorset and they form a very important habitat for lots and lots of animals that use them uh, to breed or as a nursery area for their young to grow up in a safe environment things like so things that live in the seagrass meadow are seahorses cuttlefish quite a few juvenile commercial fish species such as bass and mullet and plaice and they spend part of their life when they're young and vulnerable in those habitats because they're very rich uh, in food for them and also they provide shelter so they're uh, sheltered from bigger predators um, so if we were to lose the seagrass that would have a massive knock-on effect 
on other wildlife um, in that that particular habitat. And, so, and of just course, as an example. And of course, that would mean a reduction in fish species, and therefore in the fish catch, and um, therefore in um, how much um, not cod and chips ends up on our plate because it's not we're not talking about cod down here, are we? Um, no, that's not to say there isn't any, but it's not. It's, they're not here in numbers, no. Now, Julie, Lime Bay pretty much encompasses most of Dorset's coastline, doesn't it? So what's special about it? Well, Lime Bay is... <laughs> it's an area where... It's, it's a huge area and, and we've, it's been found to be a nursery area for some large animals like white-beaked dolphins and uh, other dolphin species and it's an important area for seabirds because of the currents that come in uh, from the Atlantic. So the, 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 the natural or the marine environment of Poole Harbour is unique, uh, is that right? Um, well, it's, Poole Harbour is the second biggest harbor, natural harbour in the world, isn't it? And of course, it's it's a strange place because on the the northern half of it is very urbanised, and the southern half is very wild, um, and so you have this unusual uh, kind of habitat that's kind of half wild and half urbanised. So, and it's very heavily used, but it's also got a lot of wildlife in it. So, I suppose in that sense, yes, it's it's unique. Very important for the for the bird populations, both in the summer and in the winter. Now, all marine species presumably are um, affected adversely affected by plastic pollution. Which would you you say, from your knowledge of the uh, uh, the, the Dorset coastline, which are the ones most affected locally? Um, well, I would say seabirds because seabirds feed. Uh, if we're talking about microplastics, so it depends what type of, of um, litter we're talking about, but for microplastics, the, the nurdles, for example, while they're floating in the sea, they actually act like a magnet for chemicals, toxins that are at very dilute proportions in the sea, but because they're attracted to the nurdles, they become concentrated on them. So anything eating them, uh, and seabirds in particular, because they feed at the surface of the sea and they have done for millions of years, and why, you know, they don't know not to <laughs> now. They don't understand that in the last few decades, the, the majority of the stuff floating at the sea has become plastic and, and inedible so they feed on them they um they, not mistake, only, they mistake them for food they mistake them for food they they're eating those chemicals that have been concentrated on the surface of the plastic um uh, which is bad for them and also they're feeding them to their chicks so the chick gets a stomach full of plastic feels full so stops asking for food uh, and can ultimately starve to death so seabirds in particular are very vulnerable but if you're talking about big pieces of net and rope and that kind of thing that can form a raft in the sea then it's larger animals like seals but also seabirds again that can get entangled um, in that and then 
you know they just get exhausted quite often they can get snagged uh, with this rope underwater and drown so um, those are the animals I would think are most at risk here in Dorset. We, we tend to think don't we Julie I suppose that most um, plastic comes into the sea or enters the sea from the shore uh, but something like 22% I understand according to research comes from shipping um, yes, I mean shipping and, and obviously we get a lot of fishing litter as I was saying, twenty over 25%, I believe it's 28% of, of um, beach litter is it derived from fishing net cuttings and, and fishing nets. Shipping, yeah, I know there are very tight controls internationally on what ships can dump at sea, but of course when you're out at sea there's no one to see what you're doing. So. I'm sure that, you know, there are ships that, that are unscrupulous and, and, and dump their rubbish rather than pay to have it disposed of when they're in port. I, I suppose, Julie, it's easy to think that um, plastic pollution of the seas and, and Dorset's coast in particular is something that doesn't affect us as individuals, or, or, or does it? That's a hard one, isn't it? Obviously, if you're visiting the beach and you live near the beach or you're holiday by the coast, then visually um, you can, you know, you have to put up with that. And it's not very aesthetically pleasing to go to a lovely, uh, you know, a beautiful place by the coast and find it covered in litter. And, and it's having this effect on, on the wildlife that, that we see and and all the litter that's out in the ocean drifting around is also bringing um, there are animals obviously that are, use it as an attachment uh, oceanic animals so animals from that don't aren't normally found here not native to the uk can arrive here en masse attached to litter and that is happening uh, and then that can have a devastating impact on our native wildlife not good news, that at all. But talking, talking of news, is there any good news, Julie, regarding plastic <laughs> pollution along Dorset's coast? Well, there is actually, because a few years ago, um, the issue of plastic, of marine litter, was brought to the general public's attention and, and highlighted on te primetime television. And it's something called the David Attenborough effect. Um, it mobilised masses of people to actually take action against litter to get out and pick this litter up from the beaches and what i've noticed personally is that you don't get the masses of litter that used to collect and accumulate on our beaches in dorset the plastic bottles the you know the bundles of balloons with their strings all entangled plastic carrier bags because when this litter does wash up, that's not to say it's not there, but when it does wash up, um, people pick it up almost as soon as it touches land. So there are community groups that go out regularly keeping their local beaches clean. There are individuals that go out every time they go to the beach and just pick up a few items of litter to remove. And of course, with lots of people doing that, it has a big impact. And certainly here at Kimmeridge, where I am, 
Um, you don't get the big accumulations of litter anymore that you used to, but in their place, of course, there is a rising volume of microplastic, um, which is a whole different kettle of fish. It's not easy for people to pick up. So that needs a different solution. And of course, the solution to all of it is to put less of it in, to produce less waste, um, to get rid of single-use plastics altogether if we can. Um, and I think people are doing that. They're using refillable bottles when they go out for a day trip. They're, you know, using reusable shopping bags now rather than those very flimsy single-use plastic carrier bags that, that we all used to have. So I am noticing a difference, but it's not the end of the problem. There is more that we can do. Julie Hatcher, Marine Awareness Officer for the Dorset Wildlife Trust. And if you'd like to donate to this appeal, then go on the Dorset Wildlife Trust website. Artist Philip Sutton is nearly 95. He lives and he's still painting near Bridport. We like to put artists in different boxes, but he doesn't regard himself as fitting into any one particular art movement. Nevertheless, he's known as a colourist. In fact, he's considered one of the leading exponents of that art form in this country. His paintings are indeed wonderfully colourful, mostly landscapes and flowers. Philip Sutton has his own gallery in Bridport, but has exhibited his work several times at West Bay's Slader's Yard Gallery, including just recently. Author and journalist Fanny Charles, who's best known locally as the editor for over 20 years of the original Blackmore Vale magazine, met Philip Sutton and told me something of his life and work. When you look at Philip's paintings, what you get is wonderful colour and joy. Even quite dark subjects like sort of dramatic coastlines, um, <laughs> they, they still have extraordinary depth of colour. He's, he's a painter who, I think words like freedom come to mind when you look at Philip's paintings because his use of colour is so natural and joyful. And, and, and has he always been like that, do you yes. think? I mean, is, is this, would, would this date from sort of teenage years or from when he first started painting? Well, yes. Um, I'll tell you the story he told me. He's going to be 95 in October. And so he's just had a big, a big retrospective at, at Slater's Yard at West, West Bay, so, which is how I came to interview him. When he was a very young boy, he lived in, lived in um, was born in Poole, has no recollection of Bournemouth, Poole, Dorset at all as a child, because almost immediately went to London, sees himself as an East Ender. Not as a Dorset man at all. Not as even a though he migrated back here. Yes, yes. Dorset born, back in Dorset, but he sees himself as an East Ender. And his brother, who was a few years older than him, went to work for a, a printer's in Hoburn. His brother died on active service in 1942, and Philip, at the age of 14, left school and went to work, and he went to work at the same printers at, in Hoburn. He says he thinks they gave him the job out of sympathy. Whatever, he worked there. And after the war, he did national service. He was on the Berlin airlift, which is a 
extraordinary experience to have had. And then he went to the Slade School, which is where the colour comes in. Because when, he, when his brother was working at, at the printers, his brother had a whole, whole set of amazing coloured inks. Because printers used coloured inks. When he got to the Slade School, apart from a hilarious description of going into this room where he, they were going to be having their first sort of practical session, and it being full of what he described as naked ladies covered in dust, uh, these were sculptures of, of Greek goddesses. <laughs> um, so his mother gave him his brother's set of inks. Red, blue, yellow, vivid colours. All the others had HB pencils. And it, I think it almost sort of, it tells you a lot about him that he stuck with his, his coloured inks while the rest were doing their lovely drawings in, in black and, 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 and white. And what did the, the tutor think of that then? And <laughs> so that he... Must have been a bit surprised. He recalls a, a little while, not, not days, weeks or even months, when the tutor was called Sam. And um, he, sa he said, Phil, I don't think I can help you. And Philip said to Sam, I don't think you can. He always knew what he wanted to do. And so I think the great thing about him is to meet somebody who has lived through so many art trends and fads and fashions, op art, pop art, you name it, of course, conceptual art, and not to mention the YBAs, the Young British Artists. Philip has never been touched by any of these fads or fashions. He's done his own thing. He, he's never, he, he's never um, agreed or, or uh, considered that he could be put in a box and labelled no. with any particular no. movement. No. He's never wanted to belong to one. It wouldn't suit him. He's, he is one of them. He's not a rebel. That's the interesting thing. You don't feel that he was ever somebody who was aggressively um, pursuing a different way of working. It's how he works. It's how he expresses himself. I mean, he said all sorts of fascinating things to me, and I could read you a couple of the quotes explaining, you know, what he what he says about how he approaches work. Um, but one of the most interesting stories he, he, he did talk to me about, because I already knew he was very interested in prehistory and in prehistoric art, and he's not in alone in that. I mean, there's Brian Graham down in, in Swanage, who's an artist who works very closely with archaeologists and paleontologists. But he's an abstract artist, and Philip is not abstract. After the Slade and he did very well at the Slade and he won prizes and then he got a he got a bursary to travel and he and he'd married Heather by then and Heather they met at the Slade and Heather is sadly now dead but she was a pioneering woman documentary maker and he and Heather went off and traveled through mainly France they did go into Spain as well but they spent this this year with this scholarship exploring and one of the things they did was go to see the cave paintings of Lascaux and this is before they were closed because of course the number of people who went to see them the 
all the just all the hot air that people were blowing out was beginning to damage these incredibly the, the condensation from people's yeah. breath. Um, mm. So what what the, I'm sure you know this, but what they did was they created a copy of of the Lascaux paintings in another cave, but where people could go, so they could go and see the exact replicas. But Philip and Heather actually saw the originals. They, they were very lucky because it was they back were... in the early 60s that the caves were actually closed to the public. Yes, so this was in the early-ish 50s. And, and did that, uh, I mean, they are very striking, those, yes. what are they, 20, 40,000 years old, yeah. those paintings? Well, he was telling me that did... they're now saying it may be 40,000. 40,000. And, and did that have a, what was it about them that had this strong influence on him? I think it was... I hate to put words in his mouth. I think it was the sense that they painted what they saw, what they knew. I mean, leave aside the sheer mind-blowing idea. Have sorry. Have you ever have you been into any of these caves and I seen have. them? Okay. So have I, so have we. We've seen originals because there are other places not so well known where they do still let you go in. And the first thing that you're struck with, apart from the colours, which are amazing, and the and the life and movement in the paintings. The other thing that strikes you is they did this by, what, tallow candlelight? Unbelievable. I mean, what drives human beings to create is a huge topic, of course. It Another is. topic altogether. Another I topic altogether. <laughs> but, but Philip was found these inspiring and he has gone on being fascinated by prehistoric, art in all its forms but I think also and again I'd hate to put any kind of words in his mouth but I think indigenous art as well really fascinates him because another thing he did a few years later I think it was a you and I I think may be old enough to remember the winter of 1963 yes that I believe it was my was... first winter in this country Ah, okay. So where did you I come? thought I thought Africa, I thought it did this every winter. No. <laughs> 1963 was pretty remarkable. Anyway, he decided he, he had, by, by then he and Heather had three young children. And so he asked, he asked around and he asked a friend, you know, where, where they might go to spend the winter somewhere warmer. And the friend suggested Fiji. So they went, and in fact, they well, they travelled through Australia and and other South Sea Islands, and they settled, and they spent nearly a year on Fiji. So, the, so he did a bit of a gogan, didn't he? Only gogan went to Tahiti and stayed there. And he did have a wife and children, and he didn't. <laughs> I'm trying not to use. Say no more. <laughs> yes, uh, gogan and the uh, the island women. It's but, but, story. but Fiji had he produced some wonderful, vibrant paintings yes. from that, and he so I mean, clearly had a strong influence oh, on had, him. Yes, if you go on to his website, which is just Philip Sutton RA, um, and it's really worth going to look at. You, there's quite a lot of paintings there. But the other thing that's absolutely fascinating is that Heather made a documentary. It's black and white and it just has a soundtrack. There's no voices, nothing. And you just see them going about their lives in Fiji. Well, first of all, nowadays, I suppose it's on various people's ghastly cruise list, cruise ship routes and things. But in those days, it was not a place that many people visited. And obviously no tarmac roads, no, no tourist shops, nothing. Just, you know, local people going about their lives um, and 
a few local shops for their needs, but a very, very much more self-sufficient life than they probably have now with all the influx of people. And it's a lovely film, actually. Um, you see him, I mean, you don't hear anything. You just see him, you see him talking to people, you see the children running around, just enjoying being in this incredibly beautiful place. And it's an extraordinary film. I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating bit of archive film of an artist working, but it's also fascinating seeing Fiji. What, what are we talking about? What, 60 years ago. Amazing. Now, I understand that uh, at some point before then, I think, um, he was sort of taken under the wing of Peter Pears and Benjamin Britten. Yes, they lived in, he lived in Suffolk for a while. Um, Finally were... just taking some coffee, yes. Sorry. In or near. <laughs> Sorry. It's, it is coffee time. <laughs> in, in or near Oldborough. But they, they're after Fiji. They lived in London. Um, Battersea, I think, and he worked on all sorts of projects. He did a lot of commissions for somebody as independent-minded as him. He did do various commissions for, you know, for big companies like Shell. He designed the logo for, I think it's the European Chamber Orchestra, um, and it's a bird, and they still use that logo. But probably the most interesting commission, certainly the most interesting to me, because I love theatre, love Shakespeare, love the globe. Sam Wanamaker asked him to paint a series of, of paintings inspired by Shakespeare, Shakespearean plays. Wide open field for somebody whose background was not theatrical. Um, but Sam wanted this. I mean, of course, the, the real tragedy of Sam Wanamaker is he died before the globe opened. He knew it was going to happen, but he didn't live to see it. But it happened, and as he had wanted, Philip's exhibition of paintings of Shakespeare, about Shakespeare, you know, work, things to do with Shakespeare, was the first exhibition at the Globe. And he didn't really know where to start, and he, what, he saw the Olivier film of Henry V, and something about that unlocked it for him. He researched costume and all sorts of aspects. And the the paintings are wonderful, absolutely amazing. But it was a so although I he is a very independent minded artist and nobody has ever told him what to do, he also had a very successful career, commercially if you like, doing all these all these commissions. But again I think people I'm guessing people asked him to do it because they loved his his colour and the, the, the feeling of just vivacity and life comes just life of life and color absolutely but of course a lot of in i mean he had in common with a lot of artists and craftspeople they don't necessarily like working to commission but it does make sure that some money comes in yes that's fairly important particularly when you've got four young children <laughs> yes you do um, so they carried on living in london and then they moved to, to west wales to pembrokeshire Lived there for a very long time. He did a lot of wonderful painting there. And they moved to Dorset. Um, I, don't, I can't remember which year they moved to Dorset, but within the last 20 years. And they lived near Bridport. Um, Heather sadly died. Philip now lives in a, a care home, and two of his daughters are in the area. There was one daughter already there, and Saskia has moved there more recently. So he's now got two two of his daughters, and and they 
they're all very close. It was lovely meeting his daughters because they value what he does and he's very relaxed and happy. The most remarkable thing about him is that talking to him, you do not for a moment see that this is a man in his mid-90s. And, and furthermore, Fanny, he has, uh, you know, and this is extraordinary for an artist who is still painting at the age of 95, he only has sight in one eye now. Yeah, yes, and I, I didn't, I don't think you'd notice it because his face is so bright. There's a, a photograph that we've got with the article on the on BV magazine um, that was taken by Millie Pelkington, who's a, a great portrait photographer and lives in Dorset. And she took it, um, it as an article for The Guardian. And we're very privileged to have been able to, to reproduce this photograph. But The Guardian did an article interviewing people in care homes of their experience of lockdown when they had such a very long time and the families couldn't see them. And this was his first time out, as it were, having tea with with his daughters in the garden of one of their houses. And just this gorgeous picture. And he's wearing this yellow yachtsman's mac. You know, you picture yachtsmen, they always have these wonderful bright yellow macs on and a proper sailor's cap. And you look at him and he looks as rakish and bright as he probably did 40 years ago. Wearing uh, vibrant colours, just Wearing. like his, like just like his paintings. Yes, vibrant colours. I mean, it must have been for an artist like Philip Sutton to have been stuck in lockdown for well, the care homes were in lockdown for far longer than the rest of us. Mm. Must have been like being in prison because here was a man who liked to go outside and paint landscapes, yes. and he couldn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, I didn't talk to him very much about it because. It struck me as being a period that probably he's happily moved on from. He's still painting. That's what's so wonderful. I mean, the the exhibition at Slader's, which is now finished, I mean, it had a lot of paintings which members of the family loaned, which have never been exhibited before. But it was just so wonderful looking at these paintings. And although his style has changed, he still has that incredible freedom, which I suspect was where Sam, the Slade, the Slade school tutor, saw this and realised, I'm guessing, I think he must have thought, I can't teach this young man anything. He knows how to paint. He knows what he wants to do with, with his art and he has a sense of colour. And that's what he still does and that's why he's called a colourist. And, and finally, Fanny, uh, I'm quite sure you would like to um, own one of his paintings, would you? You could put it on your office wall, the wall behind you. There's room there, is there? Yes. <laughs> I'd love to have one of his paintings. Sadly, can't afford one, <laughs> but I'd love to have one. Um, and I, what would you like a painting of? I'd like one of his wonderful, vivid paintings of flowers. I'm not, by nature, a still life or flower painting person. You know, I, I, I love the the Flemish old masters and I, I love the more you look into their paintings the more bugs and little bits of things falling off that you see in them because they're never perfect because that was the whole kind of you know Lutheran take on life nothing in nothing in this world could ever be perfect but um, Philip's paintings are so joyful so full of colour I'd love one so even on a nasty grey English winter's morning you wake up come and look at that don't lift your heart absolutely it really would um meeting him and i've interviewed a lot of artists over the years philip is a joy
Author and editor Fanny Charles talking to me about artist Philip Sutton. And that's all for the second episode of July's BV podcast. Terry and I will be back again in a few days with episode three. So until then, it's bye-bye from me, Jenny Devitt. And it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett.